Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, beautiful friends. Sarah Buino here. Still have a cold. Not that I have had a cold since whenever this the previous episode was released, but I record intros at the same time. Shh. It's the magic of podcasting behind the scenes. But just want to mention why I why I said like my nose is plugged up because I still have a cold over here. So welcome to Snot City Population Me. Thank you for being here (laughs) as I digress. And I wanted to invite you to follow me on Instagram if you are so inclined. Uh, That is my favorite place to connect with people where I have, I guess, most of my platform where I sort of push things out into the world. And I am at Head Heart Biz Therapy. That's B-I-Z, Head Heart Biz Therapy. So follow me and let's be friends. Let's hang out. Let's talk about stuff. I try to post things that are thought provoking and or sometimes challenging and speaking really directly to therapists and other healthcare providers about the experience of what it's like to be human and do this really interesting work that we all get to do. So would love to see you there. Before I talk about today's guest, I wanted to share a little something that today's guest sort of sparked in me. So I believe, I don't know, maybe I mentioned that. So Loretta Piles is our guest today. And I was doing some research for my Wounded Healer presentation that really focuses on wellness of therapists, was doing some research because I know that capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy deeply impacts the work that we do, the way that we're able to do it, all that stuff. And I knew that intuitively from things that I'd been learning, but I hadn't really seen a therapist, let alone social worker, talk about it. And so I did a little research and I found an article that Loretta had written. And then I found the book that she wrote called Healing Justice, Holistic Self-Care for Changemakers. And I was reading that book just a couple nights ago. And well, I was reading it last night too, but the experience that I had was a couple nights ago. And I can't even remember what I was reading, but what the book has done for me is sort of help me remember a lot of what I've been taught, but I don't necessarily put into practice on a regular basis. I'm sure for some people reading the book, there's a lot of things that that are like brand new and will be really exciting for people to stumble over. But for me, the invitation was I was reading the mind heart chapter, which I think is chapter six of the book. And as I was going to sleep, I always have trouble of like, what do I think about when I go to sleep, which is such a silly thing. But I like I don't know what to think about that's going to help me drift off to sleep. So what I did the other night was try to tune in inward because I was starting to feel ill, just sort of like recognizing what was going on inside of me. And I realized that in that instance, I really tuned into my body 
And it just made me recognize, holy shit, I've been meditating every single day, never missed a day, I swear to God, for almost seven years. I'm coming up on my seven-year meditation anniversary. And when I meditate, I never even recognize I'm just going inside my mind. I wasn't going inside of the rest of my body. And that might sound really bizarre. And I'm trying to think of how to explain what the difference is. But I can tell you the quality of the experience and how it's different for me. When I'm going inside my mind, I feel like I'm just tuning into the thoughts that are there. And sometimes when I meditate, it's not even real meditation. It's just I'm just like all of the thinking is happening and I just like I'm still sitting in my chair doing the thing. I'm still logging my meditation time. But what I experienced when I really tried to tune into my body and, and really actually specifically, I think it was more like my heart space. I was able to shift into a calm and into a more meditative experience almost instantly. And I think it was because I was allowing myself more distance between the thoughts that are always moving around in my head and everything else that might be happening in my body. And I was equally like horrified and also excited for this discovery because, like I said, I've been meditating for seven years and not like I think I'm some sort of meditation expert, but, you know, have felt like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this good thing for my spirit and my soul. And it's part of my spiritual connection. And it's also really helping me be able to be more present and aware in any given moment. And now I have a new tool. Isn't that so cool, you guys? Like you can be doing something for a long time and find something new to discover about it just by reading, learning, engaging with other people. Sometimes I will, I'll start to read something and I'll be like, I know this. And I'll get all kind of like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. But then when I read it, I'll find something. Again, it's either something that I knew and I had forgotten, something that I hadn't practiced, or there's something brand new in it that I hadn't really thought about before. So Thank you to Loretta, not only for this conversation, but to the book that you have shared with the world. And I'm really hopeful that a lot of you will go out and order it and we will make sure to put a link to it in the show notes so that you're able to order, um, support Loretta and support yourselves and support holistic transformational change, which is what it's all about. So without further ado, let me tell you more about Loretta. Loretta Piles, PhD, is a professor at the School of Social Welfare, University at Albany, Sunny. Her work centers on environmental disasters, racial, economic, gender justice, integrative healing, and human rewilding. She's the author of Progressive Community Organizing, Transformative Practice in a Globalizing World, and Healing Justice, Holistic Self-Care for Changemakers. When she's not teaching or working on her new book on rewilding, she can be found playing outside or camping in her Volkswagen van. So please enjoy this wonderful conversation that I hope will happen many times again with Loretta Piles. Hello, Loretta. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I realized I didn't even ask you, do you prefer Loretta or Dr. Piles? Oh, Loretta, please. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just kind of orient listeners to the reason that you're here is um, I do a lot of speaking. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is being a wounded healer and what that means to me as a therapist and 
not just self-care from a take care of yourself lens, but looking at more of the macro systems and how does racism and capitalism and all that stuff come into play. And I've been talking about that for a while, but I hadn't recently done any research to see if anybody else was talking about it. And I got forced to because I'm doing something that was very academic. And I found an article that you wrote and you have a book as well. So I'm going to want you to talk about all of that. But I read the article and I was like, I need to talk to you. I found you. And here you are. (laughs) Indeed. Here I am. I'm glad, glad we found each other. Yeah, yeah. So tell listeners, like, give them a little tidbit of what you're doing in the world these days. Well, these days, I've been a faculty member at the School of Social Welfare at the University at Albany, State University of New York, for 15 years. So I'm in my 15th year. And uh, yeah, I'm a scholar and researcher, writer, and educator teaching mostly MSW students and PhD students who are getting their degrees in social work. And then I'm also working in communities as well, working with nonprofits, particularly doing you know some consulting work and workshops and that sort of thing focused on particularly on healing justice of late. So I know we'll be talking more about healing justice, but yeah, that's what I'm focused on now. I was on sabbatical the year before this last one and started a new research project, which is focused on rewilding, human rewilding. And so that might be something that we could talk about as well, because it's kind of my passion. It's it's kind of sort of nature-based therapy meets ancestral earth skills movement kind of work and eco-psychology and that sort of thing. So I'm interviewing people who identify as being engaged in some kind of rewilding type work and people from all over the country and yeah, it's bringing up a lot of interesting themes, including people who identify as, or at least I'm identifying them as wounded healers. Um, I'm using that term as I observe, yeah. you know, what's going on for folks who sort of get more connected to mindfulness and nature or wanting to get reconnected to ancestral skills in the wild and that sort of thing. And it seems to be that there's oftentimes something else, you know, going on for them that triggers sort of this call back to nature, this call back to rewilding their their own souls and their bodies and spirits. And so that's been really exciting work for me because that's a big part of my journey as well in terms of rewilding myself. So so cool. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how we're gonna fit all of this into an hour, but we're gonna have a great time. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Well, I'm always curious to ask therapists and social workers and whoever their kind of origin story, like what brought you to the field in the first place? Well, let's see, just to share a little bit about myself and my background. I consider myself a child of the Great Plains. Uh, I grew up in Kansas and my mother was from Minnesota. My father was born into the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma in the 1930s. And so just a little bit about kind of my family. I had two brothers, so it was the five of us, but there was a lot of, I would say, trauma and mental health issues, substance abuse issues, economic insecurity that all kind of sort of formed part of my upbringing, as well as, you know, some love and some fun and that sort of thing too. And I had lots of opportunities in the community I was raised in, but I think 
part of me has always, you know, saw myself, I was kind of the the mediator in the family and kind of a little bit of the golden child in the family as well. So I've sort of kind of took that on, you know, from a pretty young age. But I first got into social work related activities when I was 25 years old. I was in graduate school. I had completed one master's degree in philosophy, and I was working on a second master's degree in Slavic languages and literature. Oh, my. (laughs) So different. (laughs) And I always say to this day that working on a second master's degree is a cry for help. (laughs) Because it's like... Wait a minute, what am I doing Mm -hmm. here? But I had this experience that my house burned down. I was living with my partner and uh, I came home from class one day and the house was on fire and we lost everything and we did lose our pets. Fortunately, the humans were okay, but that caused me to like reevaluate everything in my life. And uh, I ended up dropping out of the program I was in. And I answered an ad. We used to get these paper bills in the mail from like the water department. And they had these little public service announcements right along the margins in the ad. And it said, oh, the local, what we call the battered women's shelter is looking for volunteers. And I was like, hmm, that sounds kind of interesting. I don't know why I was called to that in particular at the moment. I didn't know why I was called to that. But I was like, I'm going to go check this out. So I went and volunteered and went through the training. And this was a women's collective. It was um, started in the uh, 1976, I believe it was. This is in Lawrence, Kansas. And all decisions were made by consensus. There was no hierarchy. There was no executive director. And we used consensus to make decisions. And that really formed who I was. It was an anti-oppression organization. This is in, again, 1995 when I became involved. And so, you know, we were doing anti-racism in the training in the communities and making connections between anti-racism and you know, this, you know, clearly feminist issue of violence against women. And that really just formed who I became as a person at a very young age. That was really clarified for me, like my values. And so I continued in that work for a while, but eventually got burned out. And there was no culture of support on that front. You know, we didn't really have language around even self-care, hardly, let alone healing Mm -hmm. justice. And uh, I went to work for another nonprofit and continued to do work on domestic violence and sexual assault issues and as well as focusing on economic justice issues and did that for a few more years, but eventually decided that I wanted to go back and get my PhD. And so I did, I went, got my PhD and yeah, that's kind of how my academic career kind of got launched and and then got into academia after that. But that's a little bit of my background. I guess one other sort of story here that is kind of interesting, I guess, and maybe it's a bit of a motif we'll call this the disaster motif of my narrative. And that is that my first academic job was at Tulane University in New Orleans. And that was in 2005, which was the year Hurricane Katrina hit. And my husband and I moved to uh, New Orleans six weeks before Hurricane Katrina hit. And we had just bought a house. And we ended up having six feet of water 
in my neighborhood. Wow. And so we again lost everything <laughs> that I owned uh, at that time, exactly 10 years after the fire, actually. Talk about lessons in non-attachment. Whoa. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Big time. Big time. So but what it did sort of trigger for me was engagement in disaster work and disaster scholarship and community based disaster recovery. I had been studying issues around women's economic justice, domestic violence, and that sort of thing during my PhD program. But the disaster really kind of changed everything in the community I was in. And it was like the focus of everything that was happening. And so um, that kind of changed my trajectory. And so I've been really kind of making my way through most of my career as a disaster scholar, focusing on disasters, particularly Focusing on Hurricane Katrina and then later doing work in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake there. That's been a big piece of my history and with the attention to environmental justice, climate change, like disasters in, in that context. But then I guess another thread I will add to all of this is that in 1999 is when I was just ending a relationship. I'd been in a relationship for about 10 plus years and was kind of pretty down and out overall, kind of not really knowing what my path was. I was burned out from the job that I mentioned, from that work. And I started practicing meditation then. I got involved in Zen meditation. That was kind of another turning point for me in terms of like, it was really the beginning of my personal healing journey really was then. And then it was really about 10 years ago that I began to really feel like I wanted to integrate my personal healing work with my more public-facing political commitments and some of that, you know, my social justice work, essentially. And so that's when I started bringing, you know, mindfulness and yoga into the classroom, you know, and this was kind of really still before this was kind of more of a normal thing that it is now almost. And so it was very scary (laughs) at first, but now it's just part of the fabric of the work I do. And Eventually, you know, I wrote wrote the book Healing Justice as a way to sort of integrate that together and to really be a voice for my social work students and for social workers and other activists and healers who are out there doing the work and who haven't really had a voice to express this kind of dissonance <laughs> and uh, moral injury that they're experiencing on the front lines. Yeah. And that came out in 2021? That came out in 2018. Oh, 2018. See, you were, I, I've looked at it. I was like, you were ahead of the curve. Like <laughs> you, so first of all, everybody get the book, Healing Justice. I'm reading through it slowly right now and everything I read, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And this is a lot of the stuff that I talk to my students about. And I'm, I'm curious your experience since you've been teaching for a lot longer than I have. I've been teaching six or seven years now. And what I've seen in the short time that I've been teaching is it feels like there's this push from the social, I don't know if it's ASWB or whoever's making decisions about what goes into the curriculum that everything is like evidence-based, 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 CBT, right? All of this stuff. And I'm trying to help teach my students the art of it 
because I know they're getting all of the evidence-based stuff. And I'm finding, first of all, less interest in that piece, less interest in the self-exploration that I think is necessary to do this work that we do. And sometimes even pushback. I actually had a friend who's been teaching for 19 years and the assignment was for the students to do a genogram on their families, which I did when I was in school. And she said she had a a cohort of her class that said, that's unethical. You can't ask us to do something like that in class. And I'm like, damn, if they're not ready to do a genogram, like good luck in this profession. And I'm just curious what you've been seeing. I need hope, basically, because I'm struggling (laughs) with it right now (laughs) with my current lens. (laughs) Yeah. Are you teaching undergraduates or MSW? No, MSW. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I find that my students are actually hungry for it. I really do. I really feel like they're hungry for, you know, to use your language, you know, knowing more about the art of social work, of practice, but I think also just more about the importance of their own internal work, that they have to do their inner work and that the inner work and external work are actually not separate. And there's like a direct correlation in terms of one's capability and to be able to do their own internal work in relation to, you know, how far they can go with their clients. And so the stuff that (laughs) they're not willing to feel, their clients aren't going to be able to feel that either, you know? So you know, I think we can start, we start sometimes by framing it as stress reduction, or, you know, in terms of things like mindfulness, or other forms of like internal work that they're doing in class, or as part of a class. But, you know, I think it really, during the COVID era, and I think just also just this new generation, they're being more and more open about their own like mental health issues. And they're speaking out about that more than I've ever seen in my career. So I think that's really, you know, fantastic. And yeah, I think there's still even faculty, for sure, who kind of are old school in the sense of the highly boundaried way of, you know, non-disclosure kind of approach to working with clients, which, you know, I would argue actually reinforces things like white supremacy. And, you know, it's, it's, Preach. it's, you know, basically reinforcing whiteness. And um, yeah, so, you know, breaking down those barriers is still needed. But the students, in my experience, are really hungry for it. This is my problem as the probably my own perfectionism is, you know, I have 20 students in a class. And if one of them hates what I'm offering. That's what I tend to focus on, which that's my own work to do. Yeah, right. Like yeah. that's absolutely because when I think about most folks do seem to resonate with what I'm offering and I, I get good feedback. So I should calm down. I just I worry because as much contact as I have with other social workers, therapists, it's not the leading voice that says you need to be doing your own work. That's not one of the like top build things we seem to talk about. And there's something about that for me that just feels really unsafe that I want it to be more of a of a public conversation. 
maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I'm just kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think I hear what you're saying. It's it's almost like an add on or an yeah. afterthought. Like, let's yeah. tack this five minutes of mindfulness on right. or let's tack on this little kind of reflective piece at the end of your assignment right. or healing justice and self-care on the so- a side of healing justice and self-care. Yeah. And the problem is that what you and I are talking about is actually a whole paradigm change. Yes, yes. That's kind of where the the frustration can kind of come in, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, we're still in an old paradigm. Yeah, that's such a good way to say it. But these new, you know, not only practices, but sort of new ways of thinking about some of this stuff, some of these issues of stress or uh, self-care or wellness, you know, thinking about those from the perspective of being justice issues, being, you know, really important issues for people. That's a different paradigm. And yeah, changing the paradigm is, is challenging. (laughs) So yeah, you nailed it. Well, do do you want to share people break down for them what the healing justice paradigm looks like from your perspective? I think of this term really coming about in in the last roughly 10 to 12 years when, you know, we first start to see the term and it goes by other names too, for sure. And I really see it being started and initiated, particularly by people of color, young people, queer people, people kind of who are really more tend to be on the margins of society and really people who are activists and other kinds of healers who, you know, see the wounds of things like, you know, racism or homophobia or the grind of capitalism and see how that is pushing on even just their ability to cope with stress. You know, everyone's got stress, but that there's something more going on than just like stress reduction that that we want to attend to, that we want to attend to not only the, the whole person, but the whole person in the context of society and in the context of social oppression as well. So it's this Audre Lorde quote that caring for myself is not self-indulgence, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's an act of resistance. To paraphrase, of course. So, yeah, really attending to the different ways that people can do this sort of self care in terms of valuing the diversity of ways to do that. I think that's another piece of it is that the wellness industry and the commodification of self care uh, tends towards like a homogeneous kind of way of looking at what self-care and healing work can even be and co-ops it from people. So some of the healing justice work may be about reclaiming one's own cultural practices that had been lost to you for various reasons. And so reclaiming those and valuing diversity and just the inclusivity of these kinds of practices. So I'm really encouraging people I'm working with to, in a lot of cases, sometimes it's reclaiming things that people really felt as young children in terms of what they felt in their bodies, hearts, and spirits, minds when they were young that 
help them to feel connected or have bring joy. So healing justice is, you know, also this kind of pursuit of pleasure as well. Like Adrienne Marie yes. Brown talks about with pleasure activism, it's, it is mm-hmm. kind of this finding of pleasure and joy in the work as well, which is another thing we don't talk about that it's supposed to be like, grim and joyless and um where it's supposed to be serious you know it's like well that's pretty weird <laughs> like, <laughs> right you know why <laughs> why does it need to be that way why can't we find joy in this healing work you know we're, we're working at really painful junctures in people's lives and in the lives of our collective you know we're at painful junctures now but it doesn't mean that that has to be without joy or without even excitement about like change or even excitement about kind of the possibilities that are there. So that's a little bit about it. Yeah. And talk about a paradigm shift, right? Like joy is quote unquote, not productive from a capitalistic standpoint, right? And that's probably one of the reasons that that's not always encouraged because I, I too, the other trend I've been seeing more as a, as a therapist hearing from a lot of the folks that I work with is the clients coming in a wanting some specific outcome, some very specific outcome for their therapy work together. And then also some sort of like linear progress. And as we know, working in the healing industry, that healing is not linear and it is not specific. I couldn't even imagine trying to get myself here where I am now after all the work that I've done. I never would have imagined where I am, which is the beauty of it, like just it unfolding in the way that it needs to for your experience. Yeah, no. And that's an ongoing inquiry to be able to continue to like let go of outcomes and to let go of the linear expectation. You know, we live in this rational empiricist kind of scientific oriented, you know, worldview that has silenced the deep feminine that has silenced the sort of archetypal way of thinking, you know, just kind of the whole right brain (laughs) of the human being. And so that's the kind of thing that requires a lot of attention to continue to, you know, remember that and to, you know, reclaim that part of ourselves and um, just to allowing kind of the the soul to unfold yes as it needs to as it needs to unwind right right yeah i'm sure you're familiar with resma menicum yes yeah yeah i just took his somatic abolition course and that i was so happy to hear him like really state there are other intelligences other than science and book learning. And that's what we're going to focus on in this training is he calls it Vimbasi. That's the acronym for like vibe. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's like encouraging people to stop and notice what's happening internally so that you're able to act from a more mindful place instead of react, which it's brilliant and so crucial for anti-racism work, but just for living, period. I've been using that acronym and, you know, when I get activated in in other situations and it's been so, it's been really supportive. Yeah, that ability to notice what's happening internally, this, you know, we use the term interoception. Right. To talk about that and 
it's amazing how disconnected we become from that. And uh, especially with kind of the digital world that we live in, that's so distracting and disembodied. So yeah, embodiment is a big piece of my work. Mm -hmm. Um, Been a yoga teacher for about 10 years now too. And that's been a big piece of my journey and something I really like to bring to my students. And they're very hungry for that too. And they're bringing it into their field placements and into their work as social workers as well, because it's so supportive for the other kinds of work, you know, that's, it's complimentary. And that's the thing, you know, it's not like we want to dispose of science. It's not like we don't want evidence-based practices, but these kinds of approaches can be so supportive of all different kinds of therapeutic modalities. Right. Well, I didn't even think about asking you this question before, but it's kind of a hot topic in the field of social work. So I'm sure that you've seen that NASW is now officially saying that they don't like the test, the test, the LCSW that we all have to, or I don't know what it's called in other states, but that we all have to take to get our clinical license. And I've been really grappling with, because I want more access, right? I want to eliminate racism as a barrier and ableism and all the other things that get in the way of really potentially good practitioners getting their license. And at the same time, I want to make sure that people that are doing the work are doing good work. And so I don't know what the answer is, like how we make sure that people are coming into this work for the right reasons, not harming people, but also removing the barriers. Do you have any thoughts on what you want to see? Yeah, I know it's a big question. and I'm just bringing it on you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the it's yeah, I mean, there's just also yeah, other kinds of structural problems too within schools of social work as well. Like, you know, from our perspective, the university, you know, this is a problem across the country that like enrollments are down at a lot of universities just because of kind of a demographic trend that there aren't enough younger people who are to keep the numbers of sort of enrollments where they um, are supposed to be. And so from our Mm. perspective, our university is constantly demanding that we meet these certain thresholds of enrollments. That's that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) And all this goes back to, you know, I'm at a state university, to me, this goes back to disinvestment in public education. And because we're not getting enough money from the state to run this university and have affordable education for people, we have to like constantly be upping our numbers, looking for grant funding, looking for money. So it becomes, it's, you know, it's kind of a problem of kind of the neoliberal structure of things. So we have all these, you know, demands on us to let these students in. You know, so there's pressure there. But on the other hand, all these students also have to have field placements. And there's a lot of agencies that want field placements, but there's limits that they have too, especially in the COVID era, that there's been a lot of demand on agencies and nonprofits. And so they, feel like they have less capacity sometimes to take students. Yeah. So yeah, all that to say that there's other kind of factors going on there too. I don't know a whole lot about licensing, so I I don't really follow that too much. But yeah, it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about numbers, because I feel like I've seen 
I want to blame the school for students that are unprepared for graduate level work and makes a lot of sense. It's all about money. We need to keep people coming in, whether they're going to be set up for success to be there or not. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Um, okay. <laughs> I'd love to hear about the rewilding. Let's talk about that. That sounds more hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. So for me personally, I was always a kid who wanted to be outside. And that was a way that I would cope. And that was, I wanted to get out of the house, you know, it was scary in my house and outside was not scary, you know? And so I was climbing trees. I was running around the neighborhood. I was riding my bike several neighborhoods away on adventures. And uh, so for me, you know, being outside was always like a source of resilience for me. It was just where I lived. And it's been a source of resilience for me my entire life, even, you know, as, as an adult and um, hiking and camping and, and outdoors and that sort of thing. But a year ago, I went and completed a mindful outdoor guide training to become oh, wow. a mindful outdoor guide, guiding people through mindful outdoor experiences, similar to you might have heard of forest bathing. So similar to forest no. bathing. Yeah. So forest bathing. It comes out of a Japanese context, and actually it was discovered that in the temples, the, the temples there, there's a lot of cedar in the temples, a lot of the wood that's used to build them, and then the incense, that there was like the smell, there was something about the smell that actually had a calming quality from the cedar, and so some researchers started to look at those chemicals that are in certain like evergreen trees, and they discovered something called phytoncides. And these phytoncides have all of these chemicals in it that like basically calm our nervous system, that will do all the things that we know that like mindfulness does or all of the sort of anti-stress, you know, techniques that we know out there. And so... People developed this intervention in the early 80s in Japan to basically take people through an experience in the forest where they just spend time in the forest. And you go very slowly through the forest and you move very slowly and you activate your senses and you touch things and you smell things and you connect your feet to the earth this is kind of like what I'm talking about in terms of rewilding. Yeah. It's how our ancestors moved in the wild, you know, and I see you taking a deep breath as yeah, I say that, yeah, you know, it's, exactly. it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, it's so it's there's a kind of remembering of something. And, and of course, our ancestors, when they were doing that, they were oftentimes, you know, perhaps on a hunt they were hunting or they were tracking an animal or they were foraging for food. And so they had to pay attention and really look at things. And, you know, your sense of smell and your hearing, you know, these were all extremely important. And so we've lost that. We're kind of dumbed down from a sensorial perspective. And so time in the wild, in the quote unquote wild, can be really helpful to that for that. And so I became interested from not only a personal perspective and sort of a therapeutic perspective, 
but also from a scholarly perspective and kind of as looking at this as almost a social movement as well in terms of all the people who are really becoming more and more passionate about, you know, rewilding themselves. And and there's a whole other dimension too that, you know, just the mere fact that we have the term rewilding is kind of settler colonialist in nature, right? Because there's this idea that there's sort of the civilized people and the wild people, you know, from sort of like a right. colonizer, colonized perspective. But even just this construct of the wild, you know, the idea that like, oh, I'm here in my house and out there is nature and maybe even further away from my house out there is something like really wild. And even that is a construct, of course, because, you know, I have plants inside my house and I am part of the wild. Humans, we we are wild. You know, we have the the fire in our system, we have water in our system, you know, we have our flesh is the earth. We are wild animals. The doshas. Too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just reading that part last night. <laughs> exactly. We are wild animals yeah. too. And mm-hmm. so the term rewilding in itself is somewhat problematic, but it does point to the fact that, yeah, that we've we've lost touch with something and there's a loss there. And so with my research, I've been talking to people about this, the people that are really called to do this, who are doing this, you know, as kind of their major life work, whether it's paid or unpaid, but they're doing whether it's some kind of farming that they're doing, that's herbalism, or they're focusing on some growing ancestral foods or they're focusing on different aspects of building ancestral skills like tracking and foraging and fire making and that sort of thing. But then a lot of people who are doing nature-based therapy. So a lot of therapists who are out there doing this kind of therapy, soul work that involves like vision fasting and that sort of thing. So a wide gamut of actors that I'm interviewing, but really getting at something that's really interesting and really looking. I have them talk a lot about their childhoods and, you know, what that was like for them. But it is one of the themes that there's, you know, most of them have some experience with either like a chronic health issue, a history of trauma. Another common one is actually ADHD. So several different kinds of, you know, and certainly, you know, a host of different you know, mental health issues as well, anxiety and depression. But they find that being in nature is very supportive of their resilience around, you know, coping with that stuff. I had one guy, for example, who identifies as having ADHD, who said that ADHD is a superpower in nature. Ooh, when you're out tracking, you know, he goes out on these wild journeys where he really is in the backwoods, no compass, no map. And he just kind of drops himself in there and just starts exploring to, you know, make his way somewhere and make his way back out and is, you know, tracking and looking for clues about, you know, where he might find food and that sort of thing. But he was saying, you know, you have to, you know, have all of your senses need to be online, you know, so, you know, you're hearing sounds, smells, looking in, you know, multiple directions. So suddenly, he has a superpower out there that allows him to really thrive out there. 
That's so cool. That's so cool. And two things that came up for me as you were talking. One is I have an interview subject for you. <laughs> if you need another one, please. Yeah. My friend, Mashera, who has been on the podcast a couple of times, she she started her career as a, a social worker and she called herself an adventure therapist and play therapist. And she's a black woman. And so she's really like dug into the ancestry, the soul piece of this and being in nature. And I, she probably identifies as being neurodivergent, having a trauma history and like all the things that you said. So yeah, that's one thing that came up. And the other thing that you said that when we're talking about rewilding, there's a loss. And that that hit me really deeply. And in Resma's course that I took last week, he had another facilitator named Jennifer Lee. I can't remember her last name, but she's indigenous and was talking about she can't help but feel the sorrow and the grief for the way that we've destroyed the planet. And white people and plenty of other cultures are so divorced from that connection. Like you said, that we are wild too. There is no disconnection. It's all interconnected. And and I just thought how, I mean, what would change if we all were able to get in contact with that grief? How could we not then take action for climate change and anti-racism and all of these other issues that we're facing right now? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a colleague of mine, and I are working on doing some work on eco emotions with people and focusing on, you know, grief, despair. It's a big one, you know, just feeling like overwhelmed. It's too much eco anxiety as well, you know. So there is like a host of like what we would call eco emotions, like connected to climate, environmental degradation. And just this overall like disconnection. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head with, yeah, what would it be like if we tuned into those emotions and made space for them? You know, I think most people are pretty numbed out to those emotions, though, yeah. even though they're there. And, you know, I think it's just... um sort of in the background. But mm -hmm. what's interesting, I think about the people that I'm interviewing is they're not numbed right. out to them that they, they are the sort of canaries in the coal mind of the collective of people who are really, you know, when I ask them about climate change, they break out in tears, mm -hmm. you know, because it's just so they just feel it so closely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, aren't we so lucky as a species to have people like that who are so tuned into that you right. know who can be like have that one of the people i interviewed talked about body radar like they just have a body yeah. radar for this kind of thing mm -hmm. for like just being tuned in to nature and it's all of our birthright you know it's all of our birthright but it is you know at this point in time it just like something like mindfulness where again, when our ancestors were in nature, you didn't have to practice mindfulness, you know, you were just, you were awake, you were living in conditions that forced you to be close to being alive, right? Because of the cycle of birth and death was just so much closer than it is right. now, you know, it's so right. kind of put behind curtains, you know, in our society, and we kind of keep it all at bay. Well, I'm thinking of how many 
how many people have to manufacture aliveness. This is probably one of the reasons we have so much drug addiction and alcoholism, right? Because that's a way for people to try to cultivate that aliveness or, you know, having to do some sort of extreme sports. Yeah. I'm not judging, but just recognizing how, like you said, how our society has been structured to keep us away from the natural connection of our aliveness. Yep, exactly. No, that's, that's really right on point, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that need to feel alive, and really present and awake, you know, is going to come out mm-hmm. sideways, right? you know, yes. unless we really, like, right. sort of are, you know, um, attend to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask my usual questions about uh, how you feel about the term healer as applied to the work that you do. Yeah, I'm not opposed to the term healer. <laughs> um, you know, a big part of my job is, you know, not only the scholarship of writing, but like as a teacher, you know, and so, yeah, I do feel like I'm modeling kind of a way of being. And uh, yes. I yes. think... To me, it's it's about attention to process, you know, anytime we're attending to process that we sort of step back and attend to how we're doing things, that there's something healing in that, you know, and just observing yes. and holding space, all of that is, you know, is by nature healing, I think. But, yeah, but, you know, it's synergistic, you know, we're all healing each other. And, you know, students heal each other. And um, they heal me. And it's all just kind of in a big pool of chi or prana, or, you know, whatever the healing name you want to give for like, just Mm. the healing energy that's there, you know, we're all kind of swimming in this pool. And it's, it's always available. And it's, uh, we just kind of each take turns, opening each other up to it, you know. Hmm. I love how you are simultaneously like so soulful and spiritual and you can like keep the other foot in the academic. It's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to go more woo woo and like people are like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it's obviously a fine line to walk in some ways. And I've definitely had a non-traditional academic path, you know, as far mm-hmm. as like of scholars. But I've, you know, just really kind of tried to stay as committed to my own truth as possible and to speak my own truth. I've always just sort of had to do that. But at the same time, you know, Mm -hmm. I have learned to have humility to play the game and to do what needs to be done in terms of like, scholarly inquiry and, you know, peer review and what's kind of expected with some of that kind of stuff. So it is a balance, that's for sure. And I'm lucky that I've just sort of seemed to have somewhat of a knack for being able to, you know, balance those two. Hmm. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I really, I want to be friends. I want to stay connected with you. I want to support you in whatever way that I can, because I feel like you're doing the work that I want to see in the world. And I I haven't run across, I mean, a a lot of people doing all sorts of work, but specifically in the social work realm, I haven't, I haven't seen that a lot. And so I was, I feel really blessed to find you and continue to follow you and support you in whatever way I can. 
Great. Well, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And I feel the same way. I've really enjoyed this conversation and getting to know you. And yeah, I wish you like all the best with, you know, what you're doing. And maybe there's a future collaboration for us in the world of, you know, social work, because uh, yeah, yeah, like you say, the field really needs it. That's for sure. Because uh, if we want to bring it full circle, if we want this paradigm shift to happen, then yeah, we have to, you know, be intentional about it. And I feel like, I mean, I I lump all therapists together, whether they're social workers or whatever, but I, I feel like in general, a lot of therapists seem to be fearful people. I find a lot of fear. And so to find another person who is always going to speak their truth, right, with discernment, of course, right, um, which is what I heard you say, it's kind of like a diamond in the rough to find other therapists willing to stick our neck out and say like, no, we can't do it the same way anymore. Yeah, actually, when you say the term diamond in the rough, now that resonates maybe even more than wounded healer. Mm. <laughs> I think I'm going to claim that I'm a di- I'm going to claim diamond in the rough. I love that. I'm going to go with that. Well, like it's <laughs> so the, the Buddhist idea of polishing the diamond, right? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. Yeah. Or lotus in the mud, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, is no pressure, but is there anything you want to leave listeners with today? We've talked about a lot, but any nuggets? Yeah, you can check out my website to just to learn more. It's, you know, my name, LorettaPiles.com. So I'd love to, you know, to stay in touch with you. That's I periodically send out some little newsletter blogs every once in a while with kind of what I'm thinking about. But yeah, I guess the last nugget I'll share is just about something that kind of I've been noticing is I've been following this bald eagle on YouTube. Mm. And there's a camera in a bald eagle's nest someplace on the West Coast. And this bald eagle, she is she and her partner take turns warming these two eggs that were, you know, came out in January, and they're going to be hatched at any moment. But I've just been noticing just and, and this this eagle's nest is up really high, probably a couple hundred feet in the air. And the the winds come, the snow comes, uh, and the, you know, the whole nest is swaying from side to side from the wind. And, you know, I think about the conditions that these little baby eagles need to make it in the world, you know, you know, in terms of anything could go wrong, you know, that these keep these uh, little baby eggs alive and these little baby eagles into like coming into life. And so just the idea that, you know, life is really fragile and that it's really a gift, like what an incredible gift it is to be alive. And so that's, that's what I kind of focus on in my life that it's it's like what an incredible gift life is and and we get to be here at this time at this moment when things really are very fragile and so like what a gift we have and so it makes me realize just how important the healing justice work really is you know that we have to really you know take care of ourselves and and heal ourselves to do this work well Yep. Can't argue anything there. 
Well, thank you so much. I, I again, I'm just I'm so excited to have met you and had this conversation and to be able to share it. And I will definitely have my students listen to it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just thank you for everything you're doing. You bet. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.